Back to the Forgecast. My name is Sam Towns. And I'm Alex Norton. Before we get into today's episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. The Forgecast today is coming at you thanks to Weber Abrasives, your one-stop shop for the best abrasive products available. Visit abrasives.on.net to restock today. So what have you been up to this week, Sam? Uh. <laughs> Beat me to it. Um, yeah, I've been really busy. Um, I've been working on various commissions and stuff like that uh, in the background, as well as making several steak anvils. Um, mm, just finished watching that video. It looks great. Yeah, the video went live this morning as we record, uh, which will be a week ago when this episode comes out. But uh, My I decided is number three. Yeah, well, I mean, number three's got the most work in it, and mm. um, I wanted to do... One that required no forging, one that required some forging and some, you know, power tools and stuff like that. And then I wanted to do one that was basically all forging and just a little bit Old of hand. School. Yeah, hand cleaning. Just to give an idea of like various, you know, kind of styles you could use. And it also gave me an opportunity to try out making one of those little Anglo-Saxon style uh, bicked um, yep. stump ambles, which is something I've always wanted to make. It was a massive pain in the ass to forge. <laughs> oh man, I was I was just saying to Sam off air that um, uh, I had always wondered. Like, I'm terrible at reverse engineering how things are forged in my head, and I've I've been seeing a lot of people make those over the years, and I, I thought, I wonder how like what are the steps to actually draw out that bickern on the the side of it like that. And uh, after watching Sam's video, I now know that the answer is a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, what's basically. required. So, um, I based my version off of Rowan Taylor's version. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Rowan Taylor is, uh, he's a YouTuber, blacksmith, um, professional blacksmith over in the UK, although he vanished off the face of the planet a couple of years ago, and l- I literally can't find trace of him anywhere. He had such good videos, too. Oh, fantastic videos, but he made he made one out of wrought iron and did a welded face and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't that keen. Um, <laughs> so I forged my, mine out of some mild steel. Um, but yeah, I, d- I used his technique because it looked like, uh, being one of the better techniques. My only issue is that I'm not as talented as him. Uh, and also I didn't have the right tooling, like especially the right tongs to hold that damn thing. <laughs> Using It was the, like holding um, onto a wet pee on the kitchen floor. <laughs> Seriously. Because I had to use my uh, my hammer eye tongs, which aren't really designed to hold things steady. They're just designed to hold things on the face of an anvil. Mm. Um, it made my life very difficult trying to get that thing to stay where it needed to be. But it did come out quite well. I'm going to film a video um, probably over the weekend, maybe early next week, of me forging something on it. Um, just to, you know, further use the... Uh, Anvil, and also to, you know, give some more inspiration to those people who haven't started the Forgecast competition. You still have many, many, many days left, and uh, I made that, and I made all three of those in one day, so (laughs) um, it's not uh, beyond the realms of possibility for anyone to do. He's having a jab at me. I haven't started yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 
Uh, now, you don't have to go uh, as technical as the Anglo-Saxon uh, one. As I said, I did three different models. I'm Actually, my favorite out of the three is actually the middle one. Uh, and that one I actually put a little bit more effort into because that one's going to become my pin peening anvil, uh, which I made so I can lock it in the vise um, so that I can peen the pins on my scissors and stuff like that without having to use the face of my big anvil. Um, so, yeah, that was that was my favorite. Um but yeah, the Anglo-Saxon one was definitely fun, and obviously the easiest one was welding a shank on a large chunk of metal, and then, you know, anvil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it worked. Uh, it worked quite well. Um, but yeah, so that was fun. I've also been working on a couple of swords, um, working on finishing the Mesa that I made in the live stream uh, last weekend. I recently just got my gun blue... Uh, restocked from eBay, so that that um, that whole sword's getting gun blued, uh, as well as the other sword that I'm working on. They're both getting gun blued. They're both going to be you know blacked out because I like that on my rougher swords. Yep. Um, and they're just, they're left purposefully rough because I like that kind of style. Um, yeah. But beyond that, um, it's just been much of the nutchness, um, preparing to do a whole bunch of hammers in the next week or two. Uh, still haven't made a hammer eye punch press die for the, uh, for Preston. Preston actually has to undergo some repairs because some of the welds are broken, um, because I've been using him so much. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'll be hand punching a hammer eye on my live stream tomorrow and, uh, yeah, you know, just working hard. Instead How about of hardly you, working. Well, I mean, I'm doing a lot of that too. You know, I, yeah. I can't be, I can't be too productive. Otherwise, I lose my uh, my panic disorder cred. <laughs> well, if, before if we get to before we get to me, what is your song of the week? Oh yes, song of the week. It was. It's funny because I was saying to the Alex that I've actually had this song in my mind uh, since last week, um, and it's true. And I've listened to it so much uh, in the last week that I'm almost driving myself mental uh, listening <laughs> to it now. <laughs> Uh, but, um, yeah, it, it's called, uh, Recipe for Me, uh, and it's by Thomas Sanders. Uh, people might recognize that name. He was very famous on Vine for a while, back when Vine was a thing. Um, very cool yeah, dude. Going back a ways. Yeah, no, I really, en- I used to really enjoy, uh, watching his shorts, because he was incredibly funny. And, um, he's, he's an incredible singer, and, uh, yeah, Recipe for Me is actually a really cool song. I like... I like the way it's, it runs. It's very um, almost show tune kind of style. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's got a lot of humor in it, but it's also got a lot of uh, the, you can feel the deep, meaningful moments in it uh, and the truth behind it. And it speaks to me in, in a lot of ways, especially towards the end. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a really good song. I, I really enjoy it. Mm, both of our songs of the week are songs that speak to us. Hmm. But before we get to your song of the week, what have you been up to? Uh, a lot of um, classic forging for me. Not much in the way of knives. Actually, I've not touched a knife at all except to use one. Um, I've been forging some fairly ornamental shelf brackets for somebody that's going to be using them on a beautiful piece of live edge, I believe, uh, spalted hue and pine that they've got that they're going to be uh, mounting up on the wall and they wanted to have decorative forged 
brackets for that. Um, nice. I got an order for uh, somebody actually rebuilding a 1800s um, hay wagon, and it actually has forged <laughs> components in it that um, <coughs> they want to do. They, they can't find those pieces anymore, so they, they're getting forged. Um, I've been filling a lot of Etsy orders, all of which are just sort of decorative forging. Um, that customer got his axe and has absolutely fallen in love with it. Uh, I saw that it had been delivered, but he hadn't messaged me for hours. Hmm. And I was starting to think, oh, God, maybe he didn't like it or something. But it's because he'd been running around showing everybody that would sit still long enough and um, <laughs> hadn't thought to let me know that it arrived <clears throat> safely. Um, yes, that that's the kind of delay you want. Yeah, that's right. Um, I have been doing a, a lot of classes with students lately. I think it's the cold weather bringing them all out. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, one of the students I'm particularly proud of, um, he doesn't listen to the show, so he won't hear this, but um, he's 14 years old and he really wanted, has always wanted to learn blacksmithing and he's... Um, he did the my intermediate forging class on Tuesday. Uh, he'd already yep. done the beginner's class. Um, and in the intermediate class, you learn forge welding. Nice. And um, I saw the video. Yeah, he, <clears throat> he rocked it. He actually got a successful forge weld on his fourth attempt. Um, nice. And for many people, forge welding is quite difficult. Uh, I'm not great at it myself, but I can, I can do it. I can't do it neatly and nicely and um like like roy adams sort of <laughs> um i can do it well enough to teach others how to do it let's just say that um but seeing his excitement when he landed that forge weld and it stuck and it was solid and it was fairly neat it was um he was it was just you could tell in that moment that he had formed this irreparable love with blacksmithing and he was going to be hooked up for the rest of his life um it's just really really cool moment um nice to be a part of um and outside of that i've actually started i I keep getting messaged by people um saying that they would love to do my courses but they can't get to me because i live on a tiny island in the middle of nowhere Uh, so i've actually been trying to do these sort of nice production value filmed classes um exactly the same content that i do in my classes but all like close-ups and going through the whole thing with plasticine and then going through it with hot steel and showing from different angles and different techniques and explaining everything and all that all filmed out that people can actually and just sort of sell them online in, instead of selling lessons um, mm-hmm. and they don't get the benefit of having me l- watching them work and saying this is what you're doing wrong but it's better than nothing so um, yeah. I've I've been wanting to do that for months, um, and I finally have been filming the first class um, this week, the be- uh, beginners forging class this week, and it's uh, it's almost done, which is really cool. I'm sort of nervous and excited to release that into the wild, um, and yeah, that was that's pretty much been my week, really. Just I've sort of retreated into myself. I haven't been particularly active on social media and that because I've just been trying to get through the large backlog of orders and, and get it all done. I was um, a bit overwhelmed um, after closing my books of trying to get on top of everything. And now I'm going to my waiting list of orders, which is even bigger than the list of things I had to do before I closed my books. So it's good to be busy um and i've got some very cool projects coming up including the largest forged project i've ever had to do 
which Ooh. I'll get into when I actually start work on it. Um, it's going to be excruciatingly difficult, um, but I'm actually really looking forward to the challenge. Nice. So, yeah, my uh, song of the week this week is actually by um, Eddie Vedder, which is a name that people might recognize. Um, a singer with probably the most mentally awesome voice um, for <laughs> I've ever heard in a male singer. Um, you may recognize him as the lead singer of Pearl Jam, but he actually has quite a significant solo career as well. Um, and he actually wrote this song as an ode to somebody that I greatly admire, um, Chris McCandless, who is... Uh, Unfortunately, deceased, but he is somebody that gave up an Ivy League education and uh, a very wealthy inheritance and, and every comfort that you could possibly want in life to uh, basically live an increasingly itinerant lifestyle um, to the point where it killed him. And they're not sure exactly what happened. There's lots of theories, but. Um, yeah, Chris the movie Ak- gave one example. The movie Into the Wild is based Into around- the Wild, yeah. yeah. Uh, Into the and- Wild was uh, the story of his, his <coughs> life sort of thing. It took a little bit of creative license, but Chris <coughs> McCandless's views and his journals that he kept made him almost like a modern-day Thoreau. Um, and it, it, I, I've sort of done a, a slightly more responsible version of that myself with my journey. <laughs> and Slightly. Slightly more responsible, um, but yeah, uh, the story of Chris McCandless has always uh, resonated with me very deeply. And when the movie of his, uh, the story of his life, as Sam said, Into the Wild was made, they approached Eddie Vedder to uh, create an original score for it. Um, and the opening song is called Long Nights. And he wrote it specifically to honor Chris's memory. And it's a beautiful song. And it's been just haunting my head all week. Um, Especially since I've been doing so much sort of traditional blacksmithing and just working next to a coal forge, hand crank um, coal forge, no power tools or anything, just doing everything by hand. And there's been a lot of these sort of misty days where I feel very much in touch with nature while I'm doing it and it's all sort of reminded me why I'm I'm here and uh, that song has yeah it's been living with me pretty heavily it's a beautiful song it's worth listening to if you haven't heard it yeah I've actually um, back when I used to listen to a lot of CDs I have the uh, the Into the Wild CD uh, soundtrack CD and um, also his uh, Me and My Ukulele Mm -hmm. album which is his solo album both great albums, um, and there's some and really powerful songs in that Into the Wild soundtrack that he did. But um, oh man, like it's weird because like it's so unlike the stuff that he does with Pearl Jam. Yeah, it's massively um, different. And when I when I got to meet him when uh, when Pearl Jam played here, uh, he is a spectacularly funny dude as well. Right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, he he is a spectacular dude, and yeah, definitely worth listening to. I, I love that we're adding that to the playlist. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, very. It's a it's it's a deep song. It's probably one of the deepest songs I've ever heard. To be honest, there's so much mm. feeling behind it, and it makes me wonder whether or not Chris's story resounded with Eddie as well in some way. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So. That being said, um, we have either inspiration of the week, or we do have a listener email. Mm, well, what do you reckon? 
I think we'll do the listener email. Um, Alrighty. I know which one we've got. It is from Jason Hostetler. Hmm. And he says, love the show and I listen to it every Friday while I work. It is the highlight of the week. I was interested in trying to turn cactus skeleton into handle scales and wondering if I need to use a wood hardener on it before putting it in resin or just use resin. And what resin would work best in this type of application? Jason. Well, for people who are not familiar with cactus skeletons, it's a pretty interesting material, actually. It is technically wood, but it's... It kind of is, yeah. It's like a... After a cactus dies, it leaves this kind of, like, ribbing behind. Um, only certain species of cactus do it, though. Mm. Um, uh, saguaros, I think, are known for it. They actually make uh, roof beams on, on cottages and things in Mexico with saguaro. Yeah, right. Um, teddy bear chollers do it, and they have kind of like a, a honeycombed one. It's a, it's a cool material. I've worked with it before. It's... You'd, it's incredibly stable, but it wouldn't. It'd be too brittle to actually um, use on its own. Ironically, yeah. you wouldn't want to use cactus juice with it because well, <laughs> you have so many, so many voids in it. It's very sort of porous. Well, I mean, that's a stabilizing agent, and I was about to say it doesn't really need stabilizing no. because it's because it's already pretty stable. I would say that you just need to put it in resin. Yeah, and I would probably you'd want to probably pressurize it and or vacuum it to get it down because yeah. it's so porous and there's so many voids in it. I'd really um, do some something to actually force whatever you're gonna um, harden it with down into those voids to prevent any sort of hollow spots forming. Yeah, and if um, you were to just use sanding sealer, I don't think it would quite get down in. Paul, I can't remember his name. There's a guy who does like dip it. Um, his, his channel, uh, I can't remember his name, but, uh, he does dip it. Um, if you look up dip it on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it, but he, uh, actually has a process where he, uh, uses a vacuum chamber to get all the air out and then puts it in a pressure pot, uh, to then shrink any of the remaining air bubbles that didn't get sucked out, uh, to get like full penetration on various random crap that he stabilizes, okay. uh, and puts in, in, um, in, epoxy so i would definitely check out that and use a thin casting resin uh to put it in and we've talked about that in our resin episode the difference between uh the thin resins that actually have that capillary effect um and the thicker ones Uh, but really essentially what you're doing is you're not trying to stabilize the cactus skeleton you're trying to make cactus skeleton micarta essentially (laughs) basically basically yeah kind of like a resin block with uh it's kind of like those pine cone yeah, uh, resin blocks that you or get. Or mammoth which tooth have... ivory, even. Uh, yeah, uh, no, because they... that's that's just stabilized. That's uh, solid. The way I've seen them, they have the color and everything. And it looks like they've done like it's casted in a block. Yeah, no. Funnily enough, that's just the natural color of mammoth tooth. Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah oh, there it's crazy. You go. Far out. Um, yeah, no, but um, yeah, you, you, uh, when you do like live edge um, wood to resin stuff, um, mm. similar similar process. So yeah, definitely when, give that when a shot. People, I'm going to have a personal vendetta come out here. Uh, when people ruin live edge timber by overfilling the <laughs> resin with sparkly dyes and shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the cactus, uh, actually the cactus thing would be a really good way to, um, to play with that kind of stuff in, in the resin because... 
like just doing a, a blank resin, I don't think would look very interesting because cactus um, cactus skeletons don't really have much color to them. Or no, it's kind of like a dead a driftwood sort of color. Yeah, so I, I think you know using some colored dyes in your resin might actually make it look really cool. Yeah. Um, but definitely email us a photo of your finished product whenever you get around to doing it because I'd really like to see how that comes out. And a couple of blocks of the handle material. Send well, them over. <laughs> <laughs> you can also send us some material yeah, if you want right. to. We'll put it on a knife. Hopefully that answers your question, Jason, and thanks for writing in. Yeah, so, no. Sam, who's been inspiring you this week? Well, I'm going to be a massive weeaboo. Um, <laughs> oh, it must it should, be a day that ends in Y. It must be. Yeah, it's it's a day. Um, no, this this last week and a half, I, I kind of went back on a, a little bit of a, a YouTube documentary kick, and all of the documentaries that I've been watching have been surrounding uh, Katana, Katana Forging. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sailor Moon was last week. Yeah, I'm more of a you know, like a Sailor <laughs> Jupiter kind of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, so I've been watching a lot of um, katana forging documentaries and a lot of them in Japanese because I've seen all of the English, you know, uh, the English ones and, and they tend to be a little crap, to be honest. But hmm. um a lot of the the actual Japanese documentaries, because you're ignoring what they're saying, uh, you don't have to worry about getting false information. You can just watch the <laughs> watch what's happening and understand. Uh, and I did a little bit more research uh, whilst watching the documentaries on the Smiths that I was seeing, and uh, one of the Smiths uh, in specific, um, Yoshindo Yoshihara, uh, Yoshindo Yoshihara, um, his work has been absolutely spectacular and he's actually been fairly um you know kind of pivotal in getting the 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 craft of katana smithing into the modern eye um he's done like classes in um america and stuff like that he's done various knife shows and stuff where he's taken these traditional uh traditionally forged katanas and, and stuff like that too show that and he's also written a couple of books um along with some western authors to help you know get it out to a western audience so yoshindo yoshihara is probably one of the main reasons why we know so much about katana forging in the west now right um he he is kind of the main guy who's been sharing all of this information he's the reason that there are so many smiths now willing to work with westerners because you know prior to his um you know kind of approaching the western market in the early 70s he really didn't uh, th there really wasn't that much information about katana forging in the west um and that was because it was you know very much a uh, a japanese thing yeah uh, it was very much a you know national keep pride it in, keep it in house yeah and i mean he was born in 1943 he was born in the middle of world war Two. um you know and so he grew up in post-world war Two japan so Where? you're saying he's not on Instagram? No, <laughs> no, I I have not managed to find him anywhere on social media. Okay, uh, he's currently 77. He is still alive, and he is still forging katanas. Uh <laughs> wow, good on him. Like he is, he is seriously just you know he's he's a he's a machine. But um, it's great um, seeing the the amount of stuff that he's done. 
Uh, he's used both traditional methods and modern methods to make katanas. Um, you know, he's used power hammers and stuff like that, but he's also done uh, various work with um, documentarians to do traditional katana forging with, you know, apprentices and all that kind of stuff. He's trained nine master swordsmiths over his career um, who all now, you know, have their own smithies and, you know, are all, you know, world cross, world class swordsmiths. Mm. Um, so yeah, he's, he is an incredibly, uh, inspirational person in the, uh, the sword making community. And just, I really like his approach, uh, in the interviews that I managed to see of him. Um, it's very much a Japanese culture kind of thing. And it's something that I love in Japanese culture is the, uh, the idea that nothing is permanent. Um, but also the idea that everything that you should, you do, you should strive for perfection um and yeah it's it's just so easy to see how inspirational he is by just watching an interview with him where he outlines his thoughts on how he approaches katana forging and why he does what he does mm. um yeah it's 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 spectacular i just love it uh and that might be because i'm a massive weeaboo but you know there you go but seeing that level of like that level of passion in other people is is the sort of thing that helps bring it out in yourself well yeah and that's it i mean he he is he he kind of you know epitomizes that that you know creative passion you know this is a guy who's dedicated himself to a single art for his entire life um and still considers himself a student um you know like in no way considers himself a master of the art Mm. Um, and I think the one thing that really liked, really kind of spoke to me about Yoshindo was the fact that he wants to share it with everyone. Yeah. Like, um, he's very, like, there's a, there's a few, um, Japanese bladesmiths who are very exclusionary. They want to make sure that Japanese bladesmithing remains a Japanese thing only. Mm. And while I understand that from like a, a traditional and historical point of view, Yoshindo is very much about the tradition and the history can't exist if people don't know about it. Yeah, that's very true. And he's, he's not so much interested in, you know, where you're from or, you know, who you are. He's interested in, are you, you know, interested and are you respectful of the craft? And will you carry on the traditions? Will you carry on the, the legacy that, that has been laid down by, you know, millennia of uh, swordsmiths before him? So yeah, it's 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 just really cool to see, um, you know, in a culture that does actually uh, be very exclusionary in some cases, um, be so sharing with information. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why we started the show is to share information. And, well, yeah. that's right. It's a value that both you and I um, uphold, not just in the show, but in our own channels and and mediums. Yeah, that's it. You know, we. There's no point in hiding, you know, the secrets yeah. because then, you know, once we go, no one knows them. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Yoshindo Yoshihara, uh, he's definitely well worth a, uh, an investigation on Google. Uh, he has written a couple of books, um, you know, back in the seventies, eighties, I think he's written one recently. <laughs> All right. Um, busy guy. Ja- yeah. On Japanese sword forging. Uh, he's been in several documentaries, including some English speaking documentaries if you're interested in looking it up on uh youtube uh the secrets of the japanese sword um not the one where they show you how to make 
um, Tamahagane. It's just about the forging uh, in in the secrets of the Japanese sword, um, and that's Yoshindo making a uh, traditional katana. All right. But yeah, very inspirational guy, and oh. I know I'm going to get a whole lot of people calling me a weeb and <laughs> and screw you. Uh, I like more it. than normal. Well, that's it. Yeah, and more than more than just you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so who's who's inspiring you this week, Alex? Mine is actually someone I'm surprised I haven't used um, before. Um, everybody has the uh, first person that they started following in blacksmithing. Hmm. Um, like way back when when I first got into it, um, and uh, Sam was actually the second. Uh, but, <laughs> so this guy came even before Sam. Oh no! I know. I but was this guy, this guy doesn't know I exist. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got one up on him then. Yeah, but he's actually very very popular in um, in the scene, and he does. It's very easy to see why he does stunning work absolutely stunning work very well known for his hammers um Mm. however he's been inspiring me because i've been looking for inspiration for my steak anvil uh submission and this guy does some of the most beautiful steak anvils i have ever seen uh his name is aaron j sergol and he runs sergol forge on uh, um just oh Looking at his work, it's just I would love to own like every piece that he has put out. Is it is it Circle or Kurgle? I always thought it Kurgle. was Kurgle. I, I, for some reason, my head always reads Circle. I've never heard it spoken, so I, yeah, I, no, nor have I. So <laughs> I apologize, Aaron, if you're listening. As if we're pronouncing it wrong, um, but that's the the magic of the internet. We're only ever seen it written, um, but yes, yeah, the the hammers that he makes are worth looking at but specifically i've been getting inspiration from his beautiful steak anvils they look like something that just fell off the back of a truck that was going into a lord of the rings film studio seriously yeah just the engraving down the side the elegance of the shape um it's the sort of thing that you look at them and you think that elves must exist because clearly (laughs) their blacksmith is missing its anvil um just stunningly gorgeous work that makes you just i mean every blacksmith has those things you look at somebody's projects and just go oh yeah um and yeah literally the first blacksmith that i started following back in the day um Hmm. and i've followed him ever since and just look forward to every single one of his posts um i started following on facebook hot chasing and stuff yeah Um, yeah, because he doesn't and he doesn't do a lot of like cold engraving. I was I always thought it was engraved, but he actually hot chases most of his like rope work and stuff in, which is scary. Yeah, scary and and incredible the results that he gets from it. It's just amazing work. Um, and like he he's followed by everyone. It's it's, <laughs> it's not surprising. Uh, so I'm not prob- I'm probably not introducing any, anybody to them that doesn't already know about him, but. <laughs> <laughs> in then, case you don't go and check him out i think i think uh the first thing i ever saw from him was like a hammer and i was like okay i need this hammer now like i need yep. this hammer in my life that's right and, and then ev- everything every he hammer is just like that the muses keep visiting him i think <laughs> man every time he hosts a giveaway he has like yeah, like ten thousand entries <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
And he, he regularly sells anvils and stuff like that, but he can't even keep them on the page for more than five seconds before people are, you know, buying That's them. That's right. And he does, he seems to collect uh, anvils as well, and um, I'd love yep. to actually see his collection. But, um, if yeah, I mean, he... When you see his hammers, you'll realize the, uh, the, the weight of this statement. I would, if I got to pick something from him, it would be one of his steak ambles. Mm, yeah, I'd, I'd have a hard time choosing, but yeah, his steak ambles are pretty freaking scary. It's good. They're so good. Yeah, it's just... Especially the way he, he mounts them in the stump as well, because, like, you know, he custom makes the stumps that he puts them in. Yeah, yeah, but, like, the beautiful details like shouldering the tops of the spike is done in this clean elegant way that actually makes it look like a visual piece of mm. the like it's, it's like it's a, a design feature outside of just the function yeah that that lens is just little details that add up to a magnificent whole that yeah i, I it, it's stunning stuff it's, it's almost inhuman <laughs> <laughs> but do yourself a favor and go check him out um sergol forge c-e-r-g-o-l sergol forge all one word on instagram he's on facebook as well um although fewer and fewer people are using facebook these days so for good reason um yes yeah so yeah absolutely and if you're listening to this aaron uh, i'd love to have you on the show to talk about how you do what you do yeah speaking of <laughs> we we are actually lining up a few interviews uh for the near future We've Sorry, got, yeah, we've have... got a few people. We're just trying to juggle the times. Yeah, everyone's been stupidly busy and, you know, everyone that we want to interview tends to be on the other side of the planet. So getting times worked out has been really interesting. But uh, we yeah. do have quite a few people who are, we are going to have on the show. Yeah, absolutely. You won't just be stuck with us as, uh, <laughs> as much as you love us, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, that brings us in, I guess, to Tool Time. Tool Time. Tool Time is brought to you by our mates over at Creative Man, whose website lets you easily place orders of blades, steels, handle materials, leather working tools, and so much more. Visit creativeman.com.au today to check it out for yourself. And this week we are talking about a steel. Steel yeah. time. Steel time. Me, me. And this time, uh, in the spirit of making steak anvils, Sam and I thought, what's the best steel that can be? Uh, scavenged and made into a functional hardened steak anvil and we came up with 4140 indeed very popular steel for hammer making but also really really good for steak anvils if you're going to be joining in this forge cast challenge Mm. yeah sam actually works with 4140 all the time yeah, it's it's quite commonly what I use for my hammers because I have a ready supply of it uh, thanks to a local threading supplier that I work with. Um, he basically stocks nothing but. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I get I get lots of it in various forms. Um, but yeah, it, it is a useful steel. It doesn't quite get as hard as like 1045 does. Um, mm. So 1045 uh, for a lot of hammer makers tends to be preferred, but... Honestly, I prefer a little bit softer hammers anyway, so uh, 4140 is my preferred. And it um, can often be uh, scavenged in the form of axles from hmm. cars and trucks and things. However, uh, as I was recently disappointed by, um, you've got to be careful with that because case-hardened axles are a thing. 
Yes, they are. <laughs> and so luckily, yeah. very easy to spot when you cut into them because it looks <laughs> looks like yeah. a lozenge. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it almost looks like it's bimetal, but yeah, it's just yeah. Just I, that's what I thought at first because I thought, who wouldn't have a case hardened axle? But <laughs> no, it's a thing. But uh, yeah, it, it, axles are where you'll find it in scrap if it is out there because um, it's it's very popular for them. Yeah, um, bearing axles is actually where I got a lot of mine from in the early days. Um, on, like the little uh, short ones? No, I'm, I'm talking like the um, industrial uh, conveyor belt um, rollers. Like the, right. the rollers that a, con- a conveyor belt runs over uh, are mm-hmm. normally 4140 axles. There you um, go. I managed to get a, a big supply of them and got them metallurgically tested so that I could, you know, use them. Cool. I've almost run out of those. I'm going to, my last run of hammers out of those are, are this week. <laughs> now, I believe, is 4140 a water hardening steel? Um, so, according to most heat treating um, guidelines, it is an oil hardening steel. Um, Don't often see people quenching their hammers in oil, though. No. Um, I, for, for, from my personal experience and talking to Brent Bailey um, and stuff like that. Most people who make 4140 hammers quench them in water. Um, and then I soften quen- those cheeks. <laughs> I've quenched all of my hammers uh, that have made out of 4140 in water um, and never had a problem. Liam Hoffman, uh, who makes a lot of uh, all of his axe heads out of 4140, uses oil. Um, but he, I believe but he uses... Different like, with a bladed tool, I suppose. Much thinner cross section, must easy, much easier to remove the heat quickly. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure the advantages disadvantages. Obviously, water is a little bit more rough on the material, but given that it's a fairly low carbon steel, I'm not convinced that it's an issue. Um, like I said, I've never had a 4140 hammer crack. Um, knock on wood. Mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's it's it. I, I use water. Um, Dan Moss, who uses forty one forty, has started using water. Although uh, I've got- seen his mank tank, is that really water anymore? <laughs> Who knows? Can that Who be knows? called water still? Well, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, so um, forty one forty is a well. It's known as a chromoly steel. It's chromium molybdenum. Uh, sometimes the Americans call it chromoly steel, but it is. Would that 41- make it particularly rust resistant? Um, yeah, it's a little bit, it's, it is a little bit rust resistant. It is mostly very shock resistant. Um, Mm. it's also very, uh, kind of torsion resistant, um, sheer. Good for hammers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially things like dog's head hammers. Yeah. (laughs) Funny that. Uh, I, I do a lot of those out of 4140, but, um, yeah, it is normally got about, you know, 0.38 to 0.43% part carbon which is just on the edge of hardenable. Uh, as those of you who are steel nerds like myself, you will know that anything below about 0.4% carbon doesn't really form martensite. Um, so not really hardenable. But um, it also has uh, 0.75 to 1% manganese. Um, it's got a little bit of sulfur and um, phosphorus in it. Very, very, very small amount. A uh, tiny amount of silicon. Uh about 0.25% molybdenum. Uh, it's normally between 08 uh, 0.8 and 1.1% chromium. Uh, and yeah, so the 
0.25% molybdenum gives it a little bit more hardness uh, at low temperatures. Um, so yeah. Our large percentage of beginners in the audience are probably finding this fascinating, Sam. I'm sure they are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's useful information for those of you who are actually interested in heat treating uh, 4140. Now, um, vis-a-vis the heat treatment of 4140, if you were to use it for something like a hammer, um, would you? What's, what are you t- talking about? Hold it a non-magnetic? Is it uh, temper it to a, uh, like a brown... Um, so yeah, you want to, um, it, it does actually austenitize slightly hotter than, uh, high carbon steel. So high carbon steels, you're normally aiming for about 820 degrees Celsius. Uh, the austenitizing temperature of 4140 is actually 855 degrees Celsius, which is 1570 in Fahrenheit. So if you're, um, hardening your 4140 and you're finding that it's not getting super hard, that's because your temperature is a little bit too low. So um, you want to get it just that little bit hotter than you would get your blades to heat treat them with. Um, obviously, quenching in water um, or oil. Oil is what's recommended, but, you know, water tends to work all right. Um, and just for tempering, keep it agitated if you're doing a hammer. That's a large billet of steel. If you've got that up to an even heat, that's going to steam jacket like crazy in water. So really shuffle that thing around in there. Yeah, give it a good shuffle. Um, I actually use brine for when I'm doing axes and stuff like that because it just gives that that super fast, uh, cuts that uh, steam jacket down to zero uh, because brine is actually, that's the whole reason behind brining is that it actually prevents steam jacket um, creation. Cool. Um, but yeah, so uh, for tempering, I tend to temper my faces to a very light straw. Uh, I don't find that they need to be any softer than that um, because they don't get stupidly hard out of the forge, uh, out of the quench anyway. Um, but you do need to temper them. I temper my cheeks down to plum brown or uh, blue. Um, obviously, you can just temper them to gray if you want to. They don't have to be hard. Um, you know, you, you can have a wrought iron body with 4140 faces if you want to. Um, <laughs> so it doesn't really matter if the body is soft as long as the faces are hard. Um, normally I will blowtorch temper my, um, my hammers after putting them in the, in the oven. So I'll put them in the oven at about 200 degrees Celsius. Uh, and then after that, I will then temper the cheeks back. Uh, if it's a rounding hammer or something like that, I'll temper the cheeks back. If it's a dog's head hammer, I will temper from the pole all the way through to the face. Uh, and then leaving that face at a nice straw color. And by pole, he means the back of the hammer for anybody who does not know hammer lingo. Well, yeah, an axe lingo. <laughs> an axe limo lingo, yeah. Yeah, the pole, the pole is the back bit. <laughs> the hammery bit, the hammery bit on an axe. Mm. And the, the less hammery bit on a hammer. Depends on the type of hammer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for the technical terms. Yeah, I suppose um, so. Some of my hammer poles have a rounding face on them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a very useful steel. Um, actually, one of the steak anvils I made in my video, the middle one, the one that I'm really a big fan of, is actually made out of a piece of 4140. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it looks actually like a turning hammer billet. Yeah, dude. Well, it is. Uh, it was a it was an offcut from from my hammer billets. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, um, it's a very useful steel. As you see in that, I water quenched it. I just water quenched the face, and then I let the heat from the, uh, from the stake temper the face uh, a little bit. And that was all that was needed. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, so it's a very useful steel. You can find it in axle stock mostly. Uh, I, although I have found some breaker bars that have been 4140 for some reason. Um, like the big two-handed breaker bars. I would have thought that'd be like sub nine. Yeah, well, you would think, wouldn't you? Um, yeah. But, you know, I had a couple tested because they weren't getting very hard and I thought maybe there was something wrong with them. But yeah, no, they turned out to be 4140 or very similar. Uh, it comes under a lot of names, uh, funnily enough, um, <laughs> uh, under the heat treating app that I'm <laughs> looking at at the moment, there are, uh, 15 different designations worldwide. I'm not going to read them all out. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but yeah, most of the time you'll find it under 4140, um, uh, unless you're looking at something like, um, Germany where it's, you know, CRMO 4838. Germany um, does have strange names for their steel compared to the rest of the world. Sorry, Stefan, but it's fact. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Germany has uh, three different designations for it, which is uh, G40 CRMO4, or 40 CRMO4, or 38 CRMO4, uh, depending on the carbon content. Can't fault German engineering, though. They know what they're talking about. That's because they're anal. The Germans. The Germans. Sorry, Stefan. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> um, but anyway, that being said, um, hopefully you're more educated about using your 4140 now. I think the most useful piece of information is the uh, is the austenitizing temperature being slightly higher than uh, blade steels. Get it so, hot, people. Get it hot. Don't get it stupid hot, but get it hot. <laughs> so... Um our topic this week is an interesting one. It's kind of a little bit of a, um, a sort of like a spiritual successor to a past topic where we talked about desert island tools. Um, we sort of drifted away from that topic when we <laughs> talked about that and started talking about this. So we're, we're making it official uh, and talking about the difference between need versus want when it comes to the equipment that you use in your workshop. Um, it's something that is seen really, really often. You see people think, oh, if I'm getting into this, I need to have the biggest possible anvil. I need to have the, the 84 engineering grinder with all of the trim on it and all that sort of thing. And I need to have 20 different hammers and every pair of tongs under the sun and all that sort of thing. And um, I mean, we, we talk a lot about how little you really need to start when it comes to blacksmithing and hell we're running a competition where you're making a tiny steak anvil and just so we can you guys could get to see just how functional they really are yeah and the forge cast competition was actually kind of part of the inspiration for this topic uh you know i was the one who suggested this topic and that was part of it um the other part was that i'd, I'd recently seen a discussion online uh between a friend of my, uh, a couple of friends of mine uh who shall remain nameless uh, <laughs> it was very friendly, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was about the necessity of certain, uh, massive machinery equipment, uh, in a, in a workshop. Mm. Um, and so if, for me, it's, it's really interesting, um, getting into blacksmithing because a lot of people who get into blacksmithing and we've discussed this before, get into blacksmithing with the intent of becoming professional where that should not be the aim. Hmm. Uh, at least in the beginning. <laughs> hmm. 
And, um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that it should not be the aim is because professionals have budgets, <laughs> like big <laughs> budgets. They need big budgets because they have very, very large amount of tooling that they need. Um, you know, and, and this is a need versus want. Um, so in the depends beginning, on, depends on how professional we're talking here. Cause well, yeah, I mean, but I mean, you and I are professional blacksmiths and we don't really have budgets or equipment. <laughs> No, but I have a forge press. I don't, you know, I didn't need one when I was a hobbyist. But as I'm starting to produce lots of hammers and axes and stuff like that, if I don't want to, you know, provide a lot of wear on my body that will put me out of commission, you know, a decade or two before my time, I need uh, the ability to forge large stock effectively um, without putting a lot of strain on my body. Uh, and this is where that that conversation between my couple of friends were was uh, was headed was the fact that uh, one of my friends is a well known and well respected hammer maker and he uses only uh, hand tools and uh, no power equipment to do it. And uh, my other friend sells power tools and power equipment and was insistent mm-hmm. that he need one. Uh, <laughs> And it wasn't because he was trying to sell him anything. It was just purely because uh, eventually it will put wear on his body if he's making 22 hammers a day. Um, You know, but it's one of those, uh, you know, conversations where need versus want is, okay, I'm making 22 hammers in one day with my hand tools and stuff like that, but I'm not doing that every day. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, where, where does the need versus want come with that? But, you know, on a basic level you get into blacksmithing and a lot of people will go, I need a two by 72. Yeah. Like doesn't even matter if it's an 84 engineering one or you're building your own. I need a two by 72 is not correct. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm living proof of that. I mean, I did so much work with a one by 30 for so long. Uh, well, just did, also it is a cheap one by 30. I mean, my, uh, for the first four years of knife making, um, I used a four by, yeah, a four by 48, 12, 12, you know, uh, 150 by 1220, uh, Woodmaster, Hafco Woodmaster. And it was like 300 bucks. <laughs> and you know, if you, if you listen to the, the title of the friggin' grinder, Woodmaster, it's really not designed to grind blades, but for four years, uh, that was all I had for grinding blades, and I made hundreds of knives using that grinder. Mm. And it still works today. I sold it to a friend of mine, and he still uses it to make knives. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's it's one of those things where I didn't need a 2x72, because I wasn't making 600 knives a year. Mm. Um, so it's one of those things where need versus want becomes uh, very socially driven because you go online and everyone has a 2 by 72 that's posting regularly. And that's because the guys that are posting regularly are mostly professionals. Yeah. Um, because they need to, you know, spruik their work so that people buy it. <laughs> and, and it so does you- depend on what you're making. A lot of the people who come out and insist, oh, you need to do this or you need to do that, uh, uh, you they're projecting their own plans and their own system and all that sort of thing on other people like um sam and i are both professionals we both do this full time we both earn a good living off doing it i don't need a press sam does because i don't make hammers i don't make axes i made one axe and it put me (laughs) off making axes forever (laughs) yep and if sam was using a press to make the sorts of things that i make it would be ridiculous 
Well, I mean, it would make it it would make it easier, but it wouldn't necessarily be a need. And that's uh, where it comes. That comes. Uh, using a press to make a hairpin would not really be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, you know, if you're forging it out of truffle, truck leaf spring or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But I mean, and this is the thing: is at the end of the day, it's it's all a matter of how much are you making and what are you making. Um, you know, there's a lot of guys out there who get into knife making and they think they need a, you know, cavernous Alex Steele style forge, you know, mm. um, but their, their eventual plan is to make, you know, like key rings and stuff. Um, it's just not realistic. Like, I mean, I'm, I can fit five hammers at a time in my forge and my forge is small compared to Alex. <laughs> like my forge is way bigger than I need it. And it's still smaller than, you know, like Alex Steele's giant cauldron mm. of death. <laughs> um, but then again, I'm not making giant halberds and stuff like that. <laughs> what it really comes down to and how it should work with people is uh, start out with the bare minimum that you need to do the projects that you want to be working on now and have the capacity to work on now and then after that start focusing on what can you add to your setup that will actually increase your convenience and your efficiency and start small like do a little bit like for example i was grinding out my knives on a 1x30 but upgrading to a 2x72 became a huge matter of convenience when I started making knives at a much faster rate and larger knives as well. Uh, yeah, because trying demand. to, yeah, I was keeping up with demand and I didn't want to have to go and invest in a, in a fancy high end one. So I just built one, but I have an engineering background. So it was all right. It wasn't as big of a stretch as it is for other people, but uh, this is the same thing. Like Sam is pumping out hex hawks and hammers and things making uh putting a press into his shop and making that up and 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 adding it into his workflow it's a convenience thing and it's an efficiency thing he doesn't need it because if that press dies he can still keep making hammers it's not going to yeah. stop him but if he had <laughs> but the thing is if he had and we've talked about this before if he had started his career of making hammers with Preston and only ever used Preston if Preston dies he stops. He can't. He has to train himself up in how to work without Preston. Whereas he started without Preston, he built. He, he can just keep working. Yeah, and the, and this is where it comes back to the, what we were talking about on the uh, Desert Island thing: is that the most valuable tool that you can invest in is your own skills. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's those skills that are going to get you through, no matter what tooling you have. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's fundamentals. You know, Learn your fundamentals. And that's it. I mean, I I um, haven't had a disc grinder for my entire knife making career, and I've got one on the way right now, um, <laughs> because I've reached a point where it will be incredibly useful. <laughs> yeah. for getting things flat without a disc grinder is a pain in the rectum. Yes. So you know, it's one of those things. But I didn't need it until now. Because now I have the need to make lots of things flat fast. Where before I could make a single thing flat relatively quickly with the setup that I had. So it's it's all about the need versus want. It comes down to 
at this stage, I need a disk grinder in order to improve my uh, productivity. And the only reason that's a need and not a want is because I'm needing that to keep the business going. Mm. You know, I need that to improve, improve my productivity, which means I can improve my income, which means that the business remains viable. If I was a hobbyist who was just doing this on the weekends, I don't need a disc grinder. I might want one, but I don't need it. Mm. And this is where it comes, becomes really important because there's a lot of people out there who look at stuff like, um, you know, YouTube and stuff like that. And they watch, uh, Torbjorn Armin or, uh, that works, you know, or me, you know, that kind of stuff, man at arms. And they Sam see Downs. them using, yeah. <laughs> but they 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 see people using you know like giant power hammers and presses and you know various grinders and mills and all that kind of stuff, and they go, I need it. <laughs> uh-huh. And and I think that that's kind of a, a fundamental flaw is that the wording of that you don't need it, you want it. Uh-huh. Um, because realistically, I've met people who are hobbyists who have power hammers who have mills and stuff like that and you know what how much they use them almost not at all they just sit there gathering dust yeah i know i know a guy who has about fifty thousand dollars worth of forging equipment and he doesn't use it because Hmm. he never has the time yeah and uh, you know like we we alex and i both know people that you know collect you know various tools yeah um and and with the with the eventual plan of becoming a blacksmith, but they haven't swung a hammer yet. You know, it's it's one of those things where we want to encourage you to get out there and swing a hammer first, <laughs> and then work out what you need. And it's it's uh, learning. There's a certain uh, priceless element that you can get from starting with little and working your way up. Instead of um, you know starting geared up and, and ready to roll for, um, from the beginning, I mean I started with a, a tiny little ball peen hammer and a forge made out of a bucket. And Sam's talked about his setup before, and he still has his coal forge from when he started. Yep. Um, and <laughs> it's you, still there. You don't need more than a set of ice grips, or you can make your first set of tongs by holding on to the long length of steel bar that you need to make them. Uh, and it's building up from there. I mean, it's going to make me sound like a crotchety old man, but it builds the character that you need. It builds the resilience. It builds the the, the fallback skills. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where we're not in an industry where innovation is going to be happening. Um, so <laughs> It's really hard to reinvent the wheel. Yeah, when you're in many other industries, it's kind of like, oh, don't lock yourself into a particular way of thinking because things could change like that. No, we're dealing with a craft that is <laughs> like a thousand plus years old. <laughs> Everything that can be learned has been learned. And yes, there are advances in technology with grinders, with mills, with um, power hammers and presses and all that sort of thing. But those core fundamentals of handwork with very, very minimal tooling have been exactly the same for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The way that I make a rivet in my forge to drop into a set of tongs is exactly the same as it was done 800 years ago with the same tooling. (laughs) It's the only difference is that I didn't have to work down from a bloom... (laughs) 
of of, of bog iron or something. It's just I just go to the shop and buy my steel. That's the only difference. And so we live in a world where you could just buy steel in any dimension that you want. But what if you can't all of a sudden? What if you need to reshape something down? Knowing how to do basic things like drawing out by hand over the horn of your anvil, um, you know, resizing dimensions, uh, upsetting to get this, the, the thicknesses that you need, all of that sort of thing. If you were to just get started in this craft and just be able to say, well, I need to upset this stock, so I'll just take it over to my press, and then ka-chunk, there you go, that's done. Without knowing how to do that by hand, you'll never understand what's going on. You'll just mm. know what the end result is. You got to, I know we harp on about it, but you got to know that why. <laughs> you got to be able to fall back on it because a power hammer can break, but you know what's really hard to break is just a hand hammer and tongs. They can break, <laughs> much less likely to break than a power hammer. And then you just pick up the head with your, with your hand and just smack it. With- <laughs> <laughs> hey man, working small enough Africa, stock that'll work. Hey man, I've seen I've seen a tribe in Africa forging spearheads with nothing but you know metal hammer. Like they're almost hammerheads, but they don't have holes in them, and they literally hold them in their hand. Mm. That's their hammer. It's like a like a yeah. I've seen those videos. It looks like those um, like an armorer's dolly that they're yep. just hitting it with. Yeah, <laughs> almost almost like a like a, a pestle from a mortar. And yeah, dolly. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, if you ever. Uh, doubting that then look up the the Gurkha smiths from you know uh, during the cold war look up the the african smiths that are working look up uh, indian smiths um, that are working in sort of third world conditions and churning out great functional stuff yep. and they're doing it with next to nothing and it's it's why we're doing this forge cars competition not just to you know get you making a cool steak anvil and making something cool but showing that People, it's not like what you see in the movies. Medieval smiths traveled so much and you had to be able to fit an anvil, a hammer, some tongs into your backpack and go for a walk with it. I mean, if mm-hmm. you, can you imagine dragging your power hammer around? <laughs> can you imagine dragging your 200-pound anvil and yeah, no 16 different hammers and 46 pairs of tongs? And then all of your chisels and all of it. You've got to learn to be able to have a handful of gear and work with it in order to... Not saying that, you know, something's going to happen, <laughs> but to be able to have that fallback is powerful. To be able to understand exactly what is happening under each blow of your power hammer and not and be able to replicate it with your hand or, or with a hand hammer, I should say, means that you will do better work. Mm. Rather than just knowing hammer smash steel, <laughs> and I mean this is something that I I, I like because I'm a bit of a prepper, um, you know, on on my off days. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like it, it's that whole it, what happens if it's the end of the world, you know, that kind of thing. But for me, it's never been about the end of the world. It's what happens if the power goes out for two days. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if 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 we have a power outage for like a you know the power. Uh, plant blows up or you know we lose a couple power lines if i don't have power in my workshop my press doesn't work my you know <laughs> you know like my, my grinder doesn't work nothing of nothing powered works how it's- can i continue to work in those conditions realistically i have the skills already 
I have the tools already, and I've because I've practiced those skills, even when I did have power, it means that if I lose power, no problem. It's actually funny you bring that up. Um, earlier in the show when I was talking about the 14-year-old student that I had in my workshop, yep. um, whenever I have a student doing a class, I have my phone on silent so people don't bother me because I get a phenomenal amount of messages throughout my day. And if I've got a student <laughs> there, I want them to have my full attention. Anyway, um, as most people know, my forge is completely off the grid. Um, even the lights are solar powered. Um, and we were working away and it's a full eight-hour class and at the end of the day, I finally looked at my phone and found out that the uh, entire Meander Valley region, a huge part of Tasmania, the north of Tasmania, had a massive power outage that went for hours while we were doing that lesson. We didn't even <laughs> notice. It's the worst one that the, the state has seen in years. Yep. And it was in the news and it was, it was this big deal. We had no idea. <laughs> yep. We were forge welding, we were making tools, we were doing all this stuff. It just, it just went past. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the day that um, the, the second Bladesmith uh, collaboration video on my, video, on my channel, uh, Making the Wakazashi with Flynn Sharp, mm -hmm. the day that he came down to do the Shinogi Zakuri on the billet that we'd forged at his place, for the whole day, we had no power. <laughs> yeah. So if you watch that video, you'll notice that I do hot rasping on the katana to get it you know to shape mm -hmm. and there's a reason that i was hot rasping it wasn't because it looks cool it was because that was the only way we can remove material quickly <laughs> and <laughs> because we had cool. no grinder yeah and it looks cool and it's fun <laughs> it's a lot of fun hot rasping is fun it really is um but this is the thing is at the end of the day those skills like if i didn't know how to hot rasp if i didn't know that hot rasping was a thing then we would have been sitting there cold rasping that thing forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and we, we forged. We, you know, we, we did most of the forging without, you know, without power because we didn't need it. Yeah. And it's, it's those kind of skills that are going to help you in the long run because you might find that, like, you know, you'll have the grinder, you'll have the mill, you'll have all that kind of stuff, but you need to just remove this piece of material really quickly and you don't want to have to fire anything up. Yeah. So you just clamp it in the vise while it's hot and hit it with a rasp. Um, you know, that kind of stuff helps me every day. Even just being when able to accurately hot cut. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Angle grinder doesn't work. Hot cut. Yep. I mean, no one wants to hacksaw through 40 mil square. <laughs> <laughs> you can hot cut through it a lot faster than you can with a, with a hacksaw. Yeah, I saw in that video doing that. Yeah. Even with an angle grinder, that's not a fun cut. No, it's really not. <laughs> but, the, I mean, this is the thing. At the end of the day, um, it, it, we've, we've kind of gone off tangent again. But at the end of the day, we're talking about want versus need. You don't need as much as you think you do. Yeah. You might think you need it, but that's because people are telling you you need it. <laughs> yeah. I want an 84 engineering grinder with all the trimmings, but I've got Frankie. <laughs> Actually, the, um, as you know, like I'm going to spruik the raffle at the moment, but um, the Knife Art Association is currently holding a raffle where the first prize is a mill, the yeah, second prize is a disc grinder. Mill. Yeah, and then the uh, the second prize is a disc grinder, and the third prize is, um, I can't remember what the third prize is, but it's something awesome. Anyway. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's a, metal cutting, it's a metal cutting bandsaw. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. Oh, 
Yeah, so and, and I've entered that because I could use any one of those three things. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like, I don't need any of those. I mean, I've I've already got a disc grinder on the way, so I don't ne- technically need a second one, but a second one would be nice. <laughs> and if you ever manage to find the blades, you've got a bandsaw. Well, I do. This is true. So the mill would be the only thing that would make a difference to my workshop. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I still want all three. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm not against you collecting those tools if you have the opportunity, but saving up multiple thousands of dollars to buy something that you don't need yeah. seems wasteful. If you, as long, so long, the, the longer you spend in the mindset of thinking that those things are a need, the longer, the further away from those fundamentals and understanding the craft you will be. Yeah, I'd much rather you save that money and then spend it on a plane ticket to go to a professional class. Mm. You know, like take a course with some a master smith or something. Yeah, get you know, something take- awesome like Carl Royer's uh, takedown buoy course. You know, yeah. the, the the things you learn in something like that are priceless. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are places all over, um, you know, not just here in Australia, but in the UK and in, um, America where you can go and do courses with mastersmiths, with people who've been doing it for multiple decades, who will teach you how to do these things in the simple and the hard way. Um, and you know, that is going to be so much better of an investment, uh, especially in the early stages. Like, you know, I'm not talking about guys who've already been in the industry for five years, Mm. Uh, and are starting to look to tool up. I'm talking about you're getting into it. You've just started swinging a hammer yesterday and you're planning on buying a 2x72. Hmm. Don't buy the 2x72. Save that money and then go to a class. I see it all the time with the students that come to my classes. Like Most of the time, like nine times out of ten, they love it. Um, but every so often you get a student that's booked a class and everything, they've always wanted to try it. And by the end of the day, you can tell they've realized that blacksmithing <laughs> is not for them. Yeah, it does happen a lot. It does happen. But, um, you know, you don't want that to happen to you after you've spent five grand on equipment. Well, and and this is the thing is that, like, there's a lot of people that I know. Like, I've actually had a couple of students. Uh, One of my students bought a whole bunch of gear after he did a class with me because he thought it was, you know, going to be something that he was going to, you know, proceed proceed with. He spent, like, $8,000 on equipment. And then three months later, he sold it all (laughs) for less than he paid for it. That's a hell of a garage sale. Because he found out that he was going to be changing jobs uh, in his main job and he wasn't going to have time for it. He wasn't going to end up, you know, it wasn't a priority for him. So therefore, he was just going to let it go. I always find those posters on on, on the Facebook groups and that you see a post where someone's saying, selling an entire knife making workshop. (laughs) I always find it really sad it's sort of like you kind of want to pour one out let's take a moment of silence well I mean (laughs) it was was like I was talking I can't remember who I was talking to about it but I was talking about Fortune Fire and Alex Steele and and those guys getting a lot of young people into it and you know all these people buying all this expensive equipment Mm. and he went yeah it's great it means that we're going to have lots of cheap secondhand stuff in a couple (laughs) months (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. There are so many people who jump to it and they just can immediately jump in feet first, grab every piece of flashy shit gear that they see on all of the cool YouTube channels and stuff. And then they realize that we're not going to use half of it. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's great. The idea of buying a, you know, Gibson 72, $9,000 grinder with all the trimmings. (laughs) 
but then you decide that you only ever want to make you know fire strikers or you know key rings some, key rings or something like that and it's like well i don't need the, the nine thousand dollar grinder for this so i'm going to sell it and buy a one by 30 yeah instead they can give the grinder to me well they can yeah they can donate it to me <laughs> but we have gone past the hour now so we should probably stop nagging everybody yeah, we should stop lecturing everyone. I'm sorry, I'm turning into my dad. <laughs> I'm turning into me. <laughs> yes, Alex this does is, lecture. This is what I do. <laughs> this is true. He does it when we're off air too. Yeah, it's basically some. We don't actually have a podcast. Sam just leaves the microphone running. Yeah, that's it. This is this is, this is the normal. Yeah, but uh, don't be- and all. <laughs> Don't forget, guys, we are running a special challenge this month for the Forgecast Challenge, and there are prizes coming um, for first, second, and third. And the challenge is to forge or fabricate a small stake anvil, and I mean small. So I'm yeah, talking... Check out my video to see how small the anvils are. Offic- officially, we're saying it's got to be less than three kilograms, but I'd really like to see them closer to the one 1.5 kilograms mark. I think the Anglo-Saxon one I made is like 850 grams. Yeah, that's it's, it's pretty perfect. Small. So a small stake anvil. Now you're not going to be judged on the anvil. You have I to will make... be judging you on the anvil. <laughs> <You've> got... <laughs> he will personally judge you on the anvil. But <laughs> I'm going to judge you hard. You have to make the stake anvil. It can be fabricated, can be forged. It's up to you. You're not being judged on that, except for Sam's going <laughs> to judge you silently. Um, you then have to make something using that anvil. So I'm talking no power tools. It's got to be purely forged just on the anvil that you've made. And the prize is going to there be a file work allowed. Yeah, fireworks fine. It's just no power tools. Chisel work, file work, hot rasping, all that's fine. Um, but a prize will be awarded to the person who makes the coolest fully forged thing on that stake anvil. And we want to see the anvils too because, you know, that's going to be cool. But that's not what the prize is about. The prize is about what you forge. There's yep. going to be a first, second, and third prize shipped anywhere in the world. Um, but, yeah, use the hashtag uh, ForgeCast competition. We're separating it from ForgeCast challenge just so that we can, um, you know, look at it a bit easier because people are already pouring into this competition. Yeah, we've already really, got really at least cool. four people working on their anvils. I think two anvils are already finished. Yeah. Um, and one of them's got a welded face, so, you know. Oh, like, <laughs> man, that's cool. <laughs> you know, we're seeing some really cool stuff coming out already. Um, and, yeah, uh, do make sure you use Forgecast competition because I have seen a couple of people using the Forgecast challenge hashtag. Um, and we, we don't, don't want, want to get, get mixed lost. up with past yeah. things because some people are actually going back through the Forgecast challenges and still updating uh, with the uh, Forgecast challenge uh, and showing things like Rubik's twists and things like that. So we want to, which is also cool, which is awesome and epic and great to see. So <laughs> we d- we don't want to detract from them doing that. So for this specific one, since this is a special challenge, use Forgecast competition as the hashtag. Yes. Um, Yes, so we're looking forward to seeing what you do. Sam's made three anvils already. What's the hold up, guys? Come on. <laughs> That's it. Come on, what's your excuse? <laughs> so what I want to see Sam do now is did some anvilception and, uh, 
use one of those steak anvils to forge a steak anvil. (laughs) (laughs) I thought about it. And then forge something on that. I thought about doing a rune Bertram Bertram Nielsen uh, where he forged forged a steak anvil and then forged an anvil on the anvil. (laughs) But he's nuts. Yo, I heard you like anvils. (laughs) (laughs) And so I put an anvil on your anvil so you can anvil while you anvil. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it has been awesome to see the response already. I have been contacted by quite a few people who are interested in getting into it as well. Please do. As I said, doesn't matter your skill level, doesn't matter where you're at, do it because it's so much fun. And remember, like when we're not judging on the anvil, it can just be a block of steel with a welded spike on it. That's fine. It doesn't bother, yep, that's doesn't literally, bother us. <laughs> that's literally one of the anvils that I made in my demonstration video. Yeah, and it doesn't need even to be... It can be mild steel. Like You can actually make a very functional anvil out of mild steel. Yep, it's, certainly it's, can. Yeah, do some great work on that. But you know, this doesn't have to be a thing that lasts forever. It just needs to last for this one project. Yeah, and, and just forge out something clean. It's sim- simple and clean is perfect. I don't care if it's a leaf keychain, because, you know, like everyone's forged a leaf keychain at one point or another, and if you haven't, you probably will at some point. But if it's clean, if it's well done, then that's going to win. Just be, because just be a part of it. It's not about complex, it's about clean. Mm. Yeah, we are tapping into the roots of traditional blacksmithing here. We are, we are going back in time. Yeah, we're, we're in 800 AD. We are That's the yowls that are going to be looking over your work. <laughs> yep, but only one of us has a magnificent beard. Well, I mean, you know, someone's got to be. The, <laughs> someone's gotta be the <laughs> Sam's got enough beard for the both of us. No, that's it. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, definitely uh, get into it. Even if you have just started smithing yesterday, it'll be good fun. Yeah. So do it. Do it. Do it. So, um, if you have a question, blacksmithing or bladesmithing question, like how the hell do I make a steak anvil, um, for us, you can email it through to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And if you're looking for Sam, you can find him. You can find me at Sam Towns Bladesmith on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Etsy, Redbubble, Patreon, The Kitchen Sink. You can also find Alex. I go by Valhalla Ironworks, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and Patreon, and even Redbubble, where I have loads of funny merch. Including the very own Forgecast mug. All purchases of which go towards funding the show. Yes, paying for our Spotify and iTunes licensing. Yeah. So uh, get on that, and uh, it's it's always uh, good to see people always send photos when they pick them up because we've had a few people buy them, uh, and they always send me photos of them being used, which is nice. Oh, it's great! I'm going to throw a shout out here at the end, but um, one of the people that took part in the four hour knife making challenge from Sausage Man Forge actually wore a Forgecast T shirt to the uh, during the whole event love it didn't see yeah. that no no he um he actually commented to me going i, I hoped that my uh, my shirt was going to give me some extra luck <laughs> <laughs> i love that yeah excellent well guys i uh, i can hear the music coming in i can hear it too hope you all have a fantastic week we'll see you next time 
See you guys. <laughs>